0: Time for a blood sacrifice.
1: Hi, I'm Chris Fault, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and welcome to Deep Dive, where we not only talk to the director or showrunner about their craft and process, we talk to the whole creative team to lift the hood on an exceptional piece of filmmaking. And for our second episode, we partnered with HBO to break down the season two finale of Succession, episode 10, This Is Not For Tears with creator Jesse Armstrong, executive producer and director Mark Mylod, and key members of their creative team.
2: It's great, I mean, it's a
0: very nice ship. It's definitely a big ship. Sails out, nails out, bro. I need one meaningful skull to wave. What about Frank? I mean, how come Frank is even here today?
2: To save you, I can't be seen to be acting in self-interest.
3: You're not a killer. You have to be a killer.
1: Logan Roy is going to have to sacrifice a member of his family to save his empire. So he does what any billionaire media mogul would do. Gather them all in his $150 million yacht and set sail. Here's composer Nicholas Bertel.
4: Oh, the locations are so much fun with this. And I think this one in particular with the yacht, we're hearing a variation on the Moderato Cambrio piece that I wrote. It's kind of the jaunty, fun, absurd feeling, I would say. Just the idea that in the midst of everything that's going on they're just going to be on this yacht <laughs> in this gorgeous looking you know in this beautiful occasion it's just like again even for them the counterpoint of where they are with what's actually going on in their lives is so huge i mean i can only imagine if you're on that yacht in this moment how can you possibly enjoy yourself <laughs> but yet you're on this gorgeous yacht
2: hey first aboard hey. early worm catches the best cabin Hi. poured out starboard home welcome to our city on the water <laughs> it's like venice
1: but it smells nice. You Your series creator and the writer of this episode, executive producer
5: Jesse Armstrong. Lots of rich people have yachts. There's a thing about isolation about them, and a, a thing about, I think, I guess, about all super wealthy environments that it, you know, you create these heavens, which can also then be hells. Obviously, there's a thing in the show about boats, about cruise lines and things going horribly wrong on them. There's a thing about The phrase of who you're going to throw overboard, which in rather a literal way, kind of silly way, appeals. Armstrong studied American
1: history in school, and so much of this show is based on his deep research into the lives of these media magnet families. And from Murdoch's old competitor Maxwell dying on his yacht, to the significant moments from injuries to meetings with prime ministers Murdoch himself has had aboard his yacht, Armstrong has wanted to get his characters on a boat dating back to Tom's bachelor party in season one. But even beyond that history... It's built into the DNA of Succession that we travel with these characters to places of extreme wealth and privilege. It's a recurring series with virtually no standing sets, and almost every episode we head somewhere new. And the use of location has a great deal to do with how we relate to the Roy's wealth, their transience, and how we experience their inability to buy comfort even aboard a $150 million yacht. Here's series production designer Stephen Carter.
6: In portraying this wealth, we should feel it through the eyes of our characters who are essentially numb to most of it. They've grown up with money and been surrounded by privilege for so long that the trappings that go with it are nothing to them anymore. And we want to make sure that the audience, rather than being seduced by the wealth porn (laughs) side of things, really feels the unimportance to them of all this expensive paraphernalia. So uh, that's been something that I think, you know, when it comes down to some making choices, we've tried to depersonalize on a lot of fronts with the idea that Logan's not choosing the items on the shelf in their summer home. It's some professional decorator that's been hired and doesn't want to risk losing this client. So they're going to avoid putting anything that might offend, (laughs) you know, and it's everything has this very sort of art directed and impersonal quality to it in their world. And again, we contrasted that a bit with the Pierce
1: family. Here again is Jesse Armstrong, followed by executive producer Mark Mylod, who directed this episode.
5: The nature of these very rich people's lives, and I think it's something which the production design team and Mark and cinematographers pick up on, is that there's something quite transient and quite depressing about the spaces that those very rich people end up inhabiting, I think.
7: Now, in contrast to that, if we look at Logan's office on the executive floor of Waystar, that space represents everything that Logan is. His raison d'etre is to, to be in that chair. His desk there, you would see military history elements. You would see Roman centurion's helmet. And that case, that does give us a window into that characters, passion and past. Whereas I think it was important that the yacht stayed as this gilded cage, but without personal attachment.
5: It's one of the great things about working with an amazing team. You go in somewhere and you're like, yeah, yeah, this looks great, Stephen. You know, I, I arrive on the morning and he's been there for three weeks getting it right. And you're like, brilliant and great, let's do it. And um, you take for granted the fact that when you, you know, sit on a desk and move an object, you look at it and it's been chosen with care.
1: Just as important as how Carter dresses these luxurious places is the series approach to shooting on location. Here's cinematographer, Patrick Capone, followed once again by executive producer and director, Mark Mylod, who ever since Adam McKay directed the pilot has been the person charged with establishing the visual language and approach to production on succession.
3: We wanted them to
1: feel uncomfortable,
3: again, Billionaires can't control how hot it is in the summer in Croatia. They should suffer like everybody else. So we try to embrace, I I love shooting in front light. I know it's almost a no-no for DPs. Uh, I love shooting in front light. I overexpose it. I try and have them look uncomfortable.
7: That was certainly a conscious choice. We could have used a lot more negative fill, which we chose not to do. Pat and I talked about it. It was a difficult choice to make because it was a kind of anti-aesthetic choice. But that really, that's the style of the show, isn't it, in terms of our visual approach. And that meant that in basic terms of what the camera does, that when we're going through an extraordinarily beautiful, opulent environment, I certainly always try to let the character lead the camera not the camera panning lovingly over the beautiful gilt detail or whatever it may be. It was important not to get seduced by the wealth and fetishise it with the camera. I think as craftspeople, everybody in filmmaking, to a certain extent, is unconsciously programmed to make things beautiful. I think it's very important that we keep that scrappy, jagged edge and fight the instinct to round those edges aesthetically to make things more beautiful.
1: Mylod, for his part, and you see this on the yacht, lets characters lead the camera through the space, never lovingly showing off its grandness. He creates stark frames of the characters and sea around them. Capone's operators are masters at finding compositions that never allow characters to be comfortable in relationship to their surroundings.
0: We're all pals here, right? So tonight, drink up, and uh,
1: tomorrow we'll figure it out. So many pivotal moments in season two take place with a cast gathered around the dinner table. In the season opener, Logan calls the family to the Summer Palace to discuss if he should sell the company. The Pierces and the Roys at Turnhaven. The indescribable and unforgettable bore on the floor. And, of course, the yacht. Specifically the big breakfast table scene, where it's to be discussed who from the family will be the blood sacrifice. Here again is Jesse Armstrong and why he seems to instinctively write towards these large ensemble scenes.
5: Part of it, I think, maybe is also my sitcom background. You know, I wrote with Sam Bain, still do, and I wrote sitcom for years. That's where my training is in half hours. And, you know, getting everyone in the room to fire off each other in a small or large ensemble cast is kind of meet and drink, especially, I guess, out of the multi-camera studio tradition, you just get everyone in there and that's where the action happens. So I wonder if there's something about learning my craft in sitcom that means I like getting people together. And also I I just, I like writing. I like imagining. I like the richness of knowing where everyone's coming from. And then honestly, when I'm writing, them kind of surprising me by what they end up saying because they've got hopefully a depth of perspective, an emotional reaction to what's going on around them.
1: From a filmmaking perspective, gathering the ensemble around the dinner table, or in this case, the breakfast table, is one of the hardest things to direct and shoot. Everyone's seated, static. The director has a hand tied behind their back in terms of staging and blocking. So much will depend on the camera to reveal how the dynamics will unfold in the Shakespearean game Logan is staging here.
2: Why is he doing it like this, do you think? How do you mean? We're all pals here.
4: Let's have a discussion. Like he suddenly wants our views because he loves advice.
2: It's running a show trial. Mm-hmm. Get the whole Politburo to sign the death warrant. Then all our hands are bathed with blood.
1: Well, that's nice and lovely. With Logan at the head of the table playing Puppet Master, and the variety of personal and political dynamics we've been watching play out all season between the dozen other characters seated at the table, you can maybe start to imagine how a director might divide the scene into a master shot and coverage of individual characters. Yet, in talking to the succession team, it becomes clear there is no set coverage. This scene had three camera operators given a tremendous amount of freedom and encouragement to follow their instincts, to listen to the characters and react, panning, reframing, often in tight compositions, to capture what they instinctively feel is most interesting. Armstrong just talked about how when he sits down to write these scenes with the ensemble all gathered, he's surprised by what characters say and reveal about themselves. And that pretty much describes the viewpoint of the camera. Here again is Jesse Armstrong, followed immediately by Logan himself, Brian Cox, and then later you'll hear from Jeremy Strong, who of course plays Kendall Roy.
5: It's more fluid to do it how we do it, which is long takes and the cameras rove around and the Camera operators are hugely sympathetic, humane people who are like performers because they look and capture those reactions around the table because they know that when Tom says that, Shiv will look like this, or might do, and Roman will look like that, and their eyes are your eyes. So it feels very fluid.
0: In a way, the immediacy does actually come from the operators. And that makes a very happy show because the operators are as involved as, and it's not just technical, they're as involved as the actors are. So they have their own slant. They see something and they say, oh, I'd like to pick that up. And we do it again and they pick it up, you know, and then we might do something different, you know. So it has a kind of volubility about it.
5: The camera reacts with the speed of a human being rather than somebody who knows what's going to happen next. And that lets the comedy and drama play in a way which... I think, subliminally makes you feel like you're in the room.
8: And their job is to support the psychodynamics of the scene. And so they are sort of very emotionally and empathically involved with filming what we're doing. There are some times where I'll start saying, hey, I might do that. And one of our operators would just say, don't tell me, just do it. You know, we'll find you.
1: What Jeremy Strong is getting at here is really interesting because a camera operator is traditionally trained to anticipate an actor's movement, with the goal being a choreographed synchronization between actor and camera. Here again is cinematographer Patrick Capone.
3: We don't want to anticipate things. There's a scene where Tom and Greg are throwing bottles at each other in the office, episode three or four. And at one point, one of them leans over to the operator and says, I'm going to duck under the desk this time. And he goes, please don't tell me that. I want to react to it. And it's those little half beats behind, it's those little inconsistencies.
1: That sense of the camera reacting while finding private, almost stolen character reactions is a sweet spot, according to Mark Mylod, who is followed here by Jesse Armstrong.
7: The moments that I speak of are at least as much about reactions, what people are doing when they're not speaking, than simply a tick sheet of, okay, they said that line, tick. The reactions are at least as important they're, they're you know, particularly characters who are reacting when they don't think they're being watched by other characters, but the camera is catching that moment. We as an audience... Are let into their unconscious in that way it's a window into their souls so th- yeah those moments are huge and in terms of working with the camera operators it is as much about that it isn't just okay grab that line it's as much about finding what's going on underneath the surface which is betrayed in silence in, in reactions obviously
5: with the amount that we shoot and the number of cameras And the number of takes when we have the time and the level of improvisation and the subtlety of the actors who we're working with, it is infinite how you could cut these scenes. And so when I think of that, it makes me want to throw up. It makes me feel like I'm swimming over the Pacific Ocean and there's this fathomless ocean of missed opportunities that goes on indefinitely, right? Overall, there's no substitute for working with brilliant people because 90% of it is done when you see that first cut. I wouldn't have the vocabulary or the talent to say why the sequence that Bill cut works, but it does.
1: Bill is Bill Henry, the
5: editor of this episode.
1: And one thing that was really interesting in talking to Henry is when he's first putting together a scene, he doesn't start with a master or by trying to piece together the cast's best line deliveries. But instead, he's watching down the footage from all three cameras and, like the camera operators, searching for those revealing moments Mylad described.
2: I mean, there's just such an avalanche of coverage and footage coming in. It's just going through and excavating and trying to collect the looks, the gestures, and the readings that feel the most naturalistic and speak to, you know, the thrust of the scene. What about Frank? I mean, how come Frank is even here
4: today?
0: Thank you. Welcome. I can see it. I take it. That makes sense.
2: They're like dances. It's like, you know, I look at those dialogue scenes and there, it really is. I feel like a lot of the experience I had working in musicals and stuff like that has sort of added up to being able to make it like a dance, basically. Moving around that table and having it feel completely sort of syncopated and rhythmic.
5: When your fellow craftspeople are doing things that you couldn't verbalize because they're to do with rhythm and they're to do with all the choices that are there to be made and and you're in sync with them. It just means that my work is much easier and indeed they do things which I could never do.
1: More than anyone, it's been Mark Mylod who has helped evolve and refine the pilot's pseudo-documentary style into a unique mode of production that gets the most out of both Armstrong's words and the cast. In talking to Mylot about his approach to succession, he brought up how much studying the work of Robert Altman in particular, the way the director shot the ensemble-driven period set pieces in Gosford Park that has inspired his approach to the series.
7: I thought the way that he directed the dinner scenes in Gosford Park was groundbreaking to me. I was very used to seeing a costume drama presented in this very kind of refined, very kind of classic way. So to see it deconstructed somewhat, to see just capturing moments on the fly in a much looser aesthetic, to me was m- Just massively exciting. Altman's technique was not to tell the actors. They never had a close-up. There's not, this is your coverage. The camera could just go anywhere at any time. So the actors have to act all the time. So it's a theater experience. That's very draining for an actor to give it all. Here's DP Patrick
1: Capone talking about Mylod, followed by the director himself, And then actor brian cox the
3: other thing that mark does that's really interesting and the cast loves it and i love it we do all the tight shots first we get the dramatics done we keep everybody fresh the operators are fresh the uh cast is fresh and then at the very end when we feel we have it we'll drop back and do two or three masters from different directions just to start the scene end it cut into i mean a lot of times in our history of filmmaking you burn actors out on Masters. We did a scene. It was Fisher Stevens' first day of shooting with us. And we had maybe seven or eight cast members in a cabin. And we're shooting for about two hours. And I had worked with him before. And he comes up to me and he goes, when are you going to do my coverage? I said, we've been doing your coverage for the last two hours. Oh, no, I'm saving it. I said, you can't save anything on succession. You you have to go out, you know, balls out in the
7: beginning. The payback is the... As a result, we are able to capture and get the scene, the, the performance element of the scene, and, and, and that beautiful spontaneity of those early performances within a very few number of takes, because I'll be doing a mental checklist after every take. I've got that beat, I haven't got that beat. Okay, make sure you get Brian's moment on this. Make sure you get that. Look out for Kieran, look out for Sarah.
0: And Mark, especially when you've got a great director like Mark, He's he really does his homework. So in a way, we kind of know where the territory we're at. It's very, very well mapped before we we actually shoot. They're very theatrical. They're kind of like straight out of the theater. You know, they're like those big family scenes in Chekhov. Very much like a play. So that those big scenes have that and they have that dynamic.
1: That was Brian Cox, whose Logan character leaves the dynamics of the large breakfast scene unresolved, lingering, with it still hanging over everyone's head who the blood sacrifice would be.
0: Yeah, so I, uh, I need to reflect. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, uh, half an idea, but, uh,
1: yeah. Later. Armstrong had this mapped out very early on in the process of putting season two together. He knew, and possibly Logan himself knew, that it would be Kendall who would be sacrificed in the now famous, you have to be a killer scene.
0: Hey dad, just out of interest, um, did you ever think I could do it?
1: In talking to the team, it was a scene that they had anticipated for months. And yet, in typical succession fashion, and the need to keep things fresh, especially for the cast, they adapted at the last minute to the needs of a method actor facing a true crossroads moment for his character.
8: Before I get in the helicopter and go back to New York, you know, that scene, uh, did you ever think I could do it? I think we had about an hour of light left. It was the end of the day. I could just feel the electrical current of the scene coming out of me without a camera on and going nowhere. I don't know how to you know, half-ass a scene, especially a scene like that, which has been sitting inside of me waiting to come out and it's gonna come out only a few times in a authentic and pressurized way. So I said, I'm so sorry guys, but I don't wanna touch this anymore. And can we just shoot it? And we had not blocked it. And it was pretty complicated. There was windows all around. But Brian doesn't know if he's gonna sit or stand. I don't know where I'm gonna be in space.
3: We literally walked in the room. We've been talking about this scene for weeks, and uh, Jeremy kind of walks over to Mark and says, uh, "I don't know where I'm going to go. Uh, let's not rehearse it. Let's just do it." And I'm looking at him, and he looks at me, and I'm going, "Okay, what am I going to do?" Okay, so the operators are looking at me like, "What are we going to do?" So it was all handheld, but Pat Capone, who's our VP, said, "Yeah, let's do, let's dance," and so
8: we just did take after take where the camera was intuiting where we were going to be. You know, they would cross each other's lenses, but that doesn't matter because, you know, Mark Mylod knows what he can do in the edit.
1: For the oval-shaped room of windows, Capone quickly put up some negative black on one side of the set to create some contrast. And below, the windows out on the front deck pushed in some light to make it late afternoon kind of dusk. Mylod kept his directions to strong, simple for the first take. Start in the hallway... Walk down to find your father and talk to him. Camera operator Gregor Tavener would follow strong from behind. The circular, initially obscured entrance slowly opens to the dusk-filled windowed room, creating the perfect atmosphere and deliberate resign buildup until awaiting Logan was revealed. Here's director Mark Mylod, followed by editor Bill Henry.
7: I often very pretentiously reference Russell Crowe going into the arena for the first time in Gladiator. Gregor, the camera operator, has literally followed Jeremy, who hasn't walked into this room before. And that's Jeremy's sweet spot. It's that classic method thing, that, that this moment has never happened. with. The, he can feel pure in the moment. He, it's not tainted by a sense of rehearsal, which works for him. And his preparation is, his emotional preparation is so thorough and so immersive that it's kind of bulletproof. Any actor that wanted to look really carefully at Jeremy's performance there, the way he uses eye contact or denies eye contact is quite brilliant.
2: From the moment he's sitting there out listening to his headphones, Shiv entering. I mean, there were, there were actually lines spoken there that we just took out and just used music and gestures because we wanted him to be so completely isolated at that moment before he goes in to hear his reckoning. If I had done anything other than use that tracking shot, it, uh, I would have looked like an idiot. Greg,
0: Tom, doesn't work, won't add up. Right, no, I see that.
7: And they won't accept me. Obviously, Jeremy's character knows exactly, before he's even walked into the room, he knows exactly what this conversation is. Finding Logan sat down was a a deliberate choice that Brian and I agreed on instantly in that, Logan is making himself humble. He's giving the power to the standing character. It's as simple as just height within the frame. There's a power dynamic to that. But like Trump in a press briefing, he can't do it for very long. He can't be humble for very long. At some point, he has to stand up unconsciously in this case. He, he has to break out of a dynamic that he's uncomfortable within.
0: It's a given because of Logan's status, that it's Logan's... It's, it's not Logan's show, but it's Logan's space and if they go on his yacht, that's his
7: space. Certainly the the power of the scene is initially given by Logan to Kendall. Logan then can't help but take it back. But then there is a sense, I hope, certainly on a second viewing, perhaps through his stillness, that Kendall does in some way grow in the scene, hopefully in a way that doesn't tip the hat, in any as any kind of defiance
1: there's somewhat of a debate as to when kendall actually decides to betray his father certainly re-watching the scene you can start to at least see some breadcrumbs but in the post process on a number of levels as you'll soon learn there were concerns you'd see much more and as my lot indicates they tipped their cap of the surprise that awaits at the press conference how to stay true to kendall's journey and Strong's performance, but not below the end, was a discussion, and an exercise in fine-tuning this series in particular is well-equipped to execute. Here again is editor Bill Henry.
2: There's a beat where Logan says, oh man, don't worry about it. No real person involved. And it's at that moment also that I felt like Kendall sort of could have laid his hand there. And I remember staying a bit longer on that moment after he gets that line delivered to him from Logan and sort of really clocking it in a way that was like, okay, I'm dealing with a complete fucking monster and I'm done with this. I mean, it's just too inhumane. I think even Jesse sort of asked for it to be trimmed back so that there isn't that much of a beat. I mean, he sort of responds to it and then he moves forward to do what is The Judas kiss. But I always questioned whether the Judas kiss in that scene was sort of the dead giveaway, that this is not going to end the way Logan thinks
1: it's going to end. The need to pull back went beyond this scene. Bill Henry is about to tell you about a scene that was cut from the end. But just to orientate you in case you haven't seen the episode recently, in the version that aired, there is this brief scene on the plane back to New York between Kendall and cousin Greg, played by Nicholas Braun. Cousin Greg has to go to the bathroom, but is afraid to leave Kendall alone. He expresses sympathy.
8: You know, if you need to use the bathroom, you can use the bathroom. I'm not going to jump out the window.
6: Yeah, I'll go. Yeah, I just, uh, just for what it's worth, I'm sorry about this whole, I I just think what your dad's doing is, anyway, I'm sorry. Thank you.
1: That is in the episode, but there was more to that scene. Here again is editor Bill Henry.
2: When I watched the rough cut last night, I had totally forgotten about this beat when Kendall's on the plane with Nick going back to New York. Nick comes back from the bathroom and sits down and Jeremy says, I need to talk to you about something. And by removing that, though, I felt like, you know, it was leaving us much more open to still sort of, I mean, even though I argued the fact with Jesse that the Judas kiss to me was a dead giveaway that he was going to turn. That for sure was a beat that I knew
1: would give away the end. The decision to cut this scene is not surprising, but the fact that it was even shot was also not a surprise. Not for succession. That's because baked into the unique creation process of this series is the fact that Armstrong writes more than will ever be used. And a great deal of that is shot. And for TV, that is unusual.
5: I guess I unintentionally overwrite and then it's become part of the process and I like it. You know, the cuts are often an hour and a half, hour and 40, sometimes over two hours. And I like having the freedom to tighten and tighten and tighten. And HBO let us do it because it's costly to leave some of that stuff on the floor but I think it it means that the show is the show that we all really enjoy it's counterintuitive that overwriting leads to a leaner story
1: except that the way that Armstrong does it is there's this idea that we've been discussing of how having multiple options leads to the ability to choose the right one and at the right time just as an example in doing these interviews I learned about how Armstrong will write the same piece of exposition into multiple scenes so that he can decide when to use it if he used it at all And therein lies the real security blanket, the option to pull all the way back. Armstrong is a master of dramatic structure, and yet the ability to feel and see how things are registering, playing for an audience, he can make vital adjustments to carve it precisely with Mylod and his editor. Here again is executive
7: producer and director Mark Mylod. I would be lying if I said that wasn't also sometimes frustrating as a director in that there will be that one spends a lot of precious time on and resources on that then ends up on the floor and one can't help but think okay uh, if i'd spent that money on this i could have had more extras more cowbell whatever but the virtue of it is it does allow us this process of honing down the storytelling to its kind of bare minimum in the edit and hopefully that does just give that kind of sense of yeah leanness to the storytelling Nicholas Bertel's complex and layered music
1: is also a key tool in sharpening the delicate, tonal, and emotional balance of the show. It, too, at times takes experimentation and modulation to hone its role in the storytelling. Here again is the composer.
4: I get to be an audience member too when I first see these episodes as well. And I get to kind of share in that joy of discovery where I was totally surprised by the ending. I did not see that coming.
1: The role music would play getting Kendall from the plane with cousin Greg to the big press conference proved to be a particularly delicate balance. Once again, with the fear of tipping off to the audience of what was about to happen.
4: That's a moment where It was entirely from uh, experimenting and back and forth with jesse that we figured out what to do i had initially wanted to put a variation of the andante con moto and you know i sent it to jesse and he watched it and he he was like you know this is very beautiful it totally works musically but in a way he felt that the beauty of it or the grandeur of it started to imply that something was about to happen
5: that's a a subtly poised moment, right? Because in latter viewings, you know you'll discover that Kendall is going to do something dramatic and sort of transcendent, but we can't prefigure that. But it needs gravity because of, it's a grave moment. But you don't want to set a false path because that feels like we rarely hide the ball in this show. And I guess that's a very brief moment where we do hide the ball from the viewer, but I don't want to mislead. I want a smart viewer to be able to potentially to anticipate where where those emotions might lead. So yeah, and he's great to talk about those things to Nick because he's smart enough to hear all that and turn it into a song.
4: <laughs> Jesse was totally right. He watched the episode with it and he was like, this doesn't, doesn't work, <laughs> this is wrong. I'm, I know where things are going. So actually I, I wrote a different piece and this piece, stoso, is a different, it's a variation, again, there's a lot of these variations where I always want to kind of thread things together so they feel familiar, but they're different. This one felt particularly like Kendall was resigned to his fate. It's, it's actually very similar chords. So, you know, these sort of chords from season one, do was I did this kind of a thing. So a different motif.
1: impossible to separate kendall's journey this season from bertel's music which captured the contemplative side of strong's performance and how broken and haunted he is as a result of the death and cover-up of the waiter at the end of season one we often think of tv score in terms of post-production like the discussion we just heard about the music that led us to the climactic press conference but it shouldn't surprise anyone that bertel was thinking musically about kendall's journey in this season well before production began
4: I think the first thing I actually said to Jesse was I said, you know, as we're going on this new journey, maybe it's almost like the second movement of a classical symphony. Oftentimes, second movements were kind of brooding or contemplative. And I wrote an initial theme for Kendall, actually. That was really where I started, because at the beginning of season two, Kendall Roy is in this very dark, melancholic place. And I wanted that theme to start us with Kendall, But then I wanted to make sure that it kind of looped us back around to show that we're not forgetting where we've been.
1: One of the advantages of how much music Bertel has written for the series is the editors now have a library of a succession score to temp with as they cut new episodes. According to Bertel, Bill Henry is particularly adept in his music choices, and it's not uncommon for his temp music to stay until the end. One example was Henry going back to what the composer had written for when the car crashes into the water and the waiter dies at the end of the Season 1 finale. And using it at key moments in Season 2 to reference that moment that still haunts Kendall today. That's
4: the music of Kendall in this true darkness. True, quiet darkness, you know? And you hear it again, for example, when he goes with Logan to visit the family that he has left their child to die in a car wreck. So you hear that same
6: music.
0: I'm doing teas. Oh, um... No, not for me. Thank you. Thanks. Walter? Uh, yes, actually. Thank you.
7: Yes, please.
4: And then you hear the same music just as Kendall is going in to talk to Logan in episode 10.
7: since the end of season one and the car crashing into the lake and the drowning of the young man, water has become an element of kind of psychic torture for Kendall, I think. And so whenever we put the character in water, we make him vulnerable. We kind of metaphorically crucify him in the water. So we wanted the start of season two in those early image to have that kind of emotional juxtaposition between what should be, you know, an exalted, beautiful, extraordinarily kind of pampering image, but actually through Jeremy's extraordinary performance in the eyes is just nothing but torture. And, uh, and we echoed that or tried to echo that with him in the pool in episode 10 of being in that same place where with all this wealth and privilege, this character is still essentially haunted, is damned by his kind of existential guilt over causing the death of this young man. Sometimes
5: we had anxieties about whether that would be too much of a dark weight for people to be able to live with. But it seemed like an interesting story to tell and a true one. You know, my feeling is often that people don't change that much, and his change when it comes, has come slowly and that felt correct for the amount of distance he was going to have to travel emotionally.
1: In that last scene between Kendall and Logan, it's fascinating how much the filmmakers bring us back to the drowning of the waiter. Bertel and Henry reuse the music from the car crash as Kendall enters Logan's space one last time. The sea is carefully framed out the windows. So much of the discussion of the dialogue in this scene has been on if Kendall could handle the top job and Logan's you aren't a killer response. But it's what Kendall says after that exchange like the filmmaking, that shows how much the drowning of the waiter is front and center on his mind. I deserve it.
0: Maybe I deserve it.
1: Oh, no, son.
0: Yeah, for everything. No, no, no. God, no. It's good to pay.
1: The boy. It's Logan's response, the one editor Bill Henry worried might tip their cap. NRPI. No real person involved. It's nothing. Has always felt to me like what led Kendall to do this.
8: The truth is that my father is a malignant presence, a bully and a liar. And he was fully personally aware of these events for many years and made efforts to hide and cover up.
1: Of course, watching this moment on TV was Logan. Here's Mark Mylod, followed by Jesse Armstrong, talking about Brian Cox's now famous smirk in the last shot of
7: the episode. We hadn't shot the news conference yet. I tried to be as in camera as possible and that I really wanted to be able to play that news conference back to Brian to react to. As it was, he had nothing but a TV screen with nothing on it to look at and somebody reading in the dialogue to him. So he had very little to go on. It's the equivalent of people doing Jurassic Park and having to you know look at a green ball and pretend it's a T-Rex I told him when the camera was going to start moving in and I told him how close it was going to get to him and that was it we went for the first take and I remember this really clearly being at the monitor with Jesse it was perfect the first take was insanely perfect it was one of those moments where you jump out of bed to go to work he absolutely we did two takes because I'm a coward and I was worried about the film getting baked or something but the first take was the one we used and it was just exquisite it was again it's Talking about one of the best actors on the planet, absolutely nailing the moment.
1: What was Brian's stage direction for the last shot of the season? <laughs> I, I want to know <laughs> what you told him, but I also want to know what just what what did Jesse write in the script?
7: Um, I'm not going to tell you what Jesse wrote in the script because okay. it will leave the audience too much. Um, oh, Jesse okay. can tell you um, if he wants to.
5: I, don't, I think it's we well, think it's in semi in the public domain. Don't you have to put these things into the into the public? Domain. I can probably open it on my computer. I don't mind saying he. You know what Brian did is so sphinxy and brilliant. That's a collaboration. So I don't mind saying. Let me open my final draft. Yeah, you know what, I'm not going to read it all out. But he, he, but it's it, it, it. We, it's it. You know what he does is is just Brian. But there's a suggestion of that. That that's how we wanted to end. That's how we knew we wanted to end.
1: A smirk of some sort, uh, or a slight smile or
5: something? Slowly across his face, the cracks just a hint of not quite a smile, but a smirk snarl of appreciation.
1: I kept hearing when doing these interviews how clear Armstrong's writing is, how reading his scripts was often all anyone needed to figure out how to play or stage a scene. So I'm not surprised that the description he just read to us pointed Cox and Mylod towards such a delicious smirk that says so much. But what I did find myself continually reflecting on while I was working on this Succession Deep Dive is how such a well-written show with such an amazing cast goes out of its way to adapt a mode of production that keeps things off-kilter and fresh. How an expensive, prestige HBO show that welcomes us into this world of outrageous luxury allows us to feel the discomfort of that wealth while seeking a jagged-edge visual style. A show can maintain a tonal balance of a satire every bit as biting as Armando Anucci, but is simultaneously the rare drama worthy of the Shakespearean label. Armstrong and cast deserve a world of credit for this, but all too often it's easy to ignore the role craft plays in a modern drama like succession. Craft is not simply the obvious stuff, like period set dressing, visual effects monsters, or a handsome image. Craft is using the tools of cinema so the viewer experiences the story in a specific, certain way. And the execution of that, can often be hidden, and I hope this deep dive into the season 2 finale of Succession made just some of the the behind-the-scenes work of this one episode a little less invisible. I want to thank HBO for partnering with us on these first two podcasts of Deep Dive, and thank you for listening. If you haven't yet, please go back and check out last week's Deep Dive podcast on Watchmen Episode 6, This Extraordinary Being. And please keep an eye on IndieWire this week, where we'll be releasing video essays about Succession using parts of the interviews we did with Jesse Armstrong, Mark Mylod, and crew for this podcast. Deep Dive is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and in IndieWire and was produced by IndieWire's creative producer, Leo Garcia.